Hello and welcome to the Plasticology Project podcast. Conversations about plastic pollution and stories from inspiring people trying to make the planet cleaner. My name is Dr. Paul Harvey and I am the host and author of the Plasticology Project book. Thanks for joining me. On this episode of the Plasticology Project podcast, I speak with Professor Gabriel Filippelli. Gabe is a biogeochemist, climate scientist, and exposure scientist at the Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Gabe is Chancellor's Professor of Earth Sciences and the Executive Director of the Indiana University Environmental Resilience Institute, and recently visited Australia as a Fulbright Distinguished Chair at the University of Newcastle. Gabe is the Editor-in-Chief of the American Geophysical Union GeoHealth Journal and was previously the U.S. National Academy of Sciences Jefferson Science Fellow, which saw him take a position as Senior Science Advisor for the U.S. State Department during the President Obama administration. We will hear Gabe's first-hand account of the impacts of climate change on the Midwest of the U.S. and throughout the globe, and how plastic pollution fits into the climate change narrative. Gabe, welcome. Thanks for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. So, Gabe, I just wanted to, first of all, have you provide an introduction for us. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you currently do now in your history. Sure. Um, I am a uh, professor of earth sciences, uh, and I've spent most of my career working on issues related to the environment, so climate change and environmental contamination. Uh, I have more recently had a couple um, uh, roles within the university, one of which is I'm the executive director of uh, the Environmental Resilience Institute, which is uh, Indiana University's attempt to provide real tangible solutions for communities and towns around the Midwestern part of the United States to grapple with the, uh, the challenges of climate change, not the future challenges, but the challenges that it's already, uh, that most uh, mayors are already facing right at this moment, right? Um, and I also had the amazing honor to have been a Fulbright distinguished chair at, uh, in the University of Newcastle there in Australia, where I also um, had you as my wonderful guest on my own podcast in this climate, uh, talking about the Plasticology Project. So um, my career has largely uh, been focused now, pretty laser focused for the last 10 years about not just the theoretical aspects of the science of the environment or the science of climate, but the practical aspects of how people are grappling with the planet that we, that, that we are all occupying and how we can handle environment and pollution more gracefully into the future, meaning, I guess, providing much more opportunities for um, equitable transitions we call them just transitions here in the U.S. I don't know if you use that same phraseology, but the idea is that um, uh, climate change impact are distributed kind of uniformly across the planet. However, those that are most um, debilitated by it are those who are uh, usually those who are less capable of grappling with the, with the situation. We call this climate justice in the U.S. perspective, at least. So that's, that's been my main passion for the last 10 years. Gabe, can you give me an understanding of what it's like in the Midwest, the U.S., and some of the challenges that you see people facing every day as a, as a result of climate change? No, that's, that's excellent. I mean, it's uh, much like my experience when I came to Australia is I had only a very glossy understanding of what Australia was like. And even after five months, I, you know, I think I have a slightly more nuanced understanding, but, um, you know, there's certain regional issues and regional perspectives that I, I, I started to pick up on. Now, um, you think of the U.S. as 
you know, one monolith, right? And maybe you think of the Midwestern part of the U.S. as the area that you usually fly over between San Francisco and Los Angeles and uh, New York, which is true. <laughs> Nevertheless, unlike Australia, a tremendous number of people live in the middle of the country uh, where I do. And also unlike Australia, it's actually uh, the, the middle of the U.S. is the prime uh, area for all of our grain production. So um, in, in our context, it's, uh, it's corn and soybeans. So that's what's grown in the U.S., um, in the Midwest part of the U.S. And, uh, and that's been, it's, it's facilitated by the far, fact that we're pretty flat. Uh, we, um, we experience a lot of, uh, you know, we, we're our, our glacial partner to the north, Canada. You had massive ice sheets during every ice age. But those ice sheets would rumble down throughout the Midwest and retreat periodically. But as a consequence, it sort of leveled us out, which uh, makes us actually pretty amazing for two reasons. One is that the soil is very rich, this um, remnant glacial soils. It's also the landscape is relatively flat, which uh, as a mountaineer, it's not very interesting, true. But as a Farmer who's wanting to operate a, a large-scale tractor, an industrial tractor, is extremely convenient. So the Midwest landscape is, um, believe it or not, in the middle of summer, and, and I know from Australia this is not always the case, it's green, it's verdant, right? We get a lot of um, summer rainfall in, in the U.S. In fact, that summer rainfall in the Midwest is what um, irrigates the crops. So in my state of Indiana there's not a single uh, irrigation system on any of the farm fields. They're all irrigated from above, right? Which sounds lovely, right? It makes for very cheap production. You don't have to pump water or anything like that. But here's where we are facing our climate challenges. Uh, and that is that the rain's not coming when it used to come, right? We, we, we base this entire Midwestern grain economy on lovely summer rains coming and then it drying it the rain's no longer coming around two months after the peak of summer and so that then the corn and the beans can dry out in the fields for easy harvesting right what we're finding instead the challenges for the midwest region of the u.s is that uh the the rain is sometimes not coming in the summer like at all and it's also coming as these extreme rainfall events. And, you know, as we speak right now, Paul, there are people still flooded out in the state just south of us, the state of Kentucky. Um, so Kentucky and Illinois, Southern Illinois, the city of St. Louis, which um, a lot of your listeners would know quite well, the famous arch, um, they experienced nine inches. So what, what is that? About 22 centimeters of rainfall in about six hours. Um, and which just left, and, and it's flat, right? So the water is nowhere to go. So it's completely flooded. Um, this is happening more and more frequently. So farmers are having to grapple with two issues. One is that is flooding out their fields and they're trying to get a, you know, a, a, the, the corn or bean seeds in in the beginning of spring. Well, they can't, it's raining too much. Um, plus, then they're trying to get out in the fields when it's completely wet and they can't do that either, right? Uh, and, and, the, and the extreme rainfall is not just impacting the farmers, it's impacting cities and towns who are not only dealing with flooded streets, which is a big issue, but also with stormwater discharge, uh, which causes all, you know, a whole myriad of pollution issues. So that's the Midwest. You know, our biggest climate challenge is these extreme flooding events, um, and then compounded by uh, some very long extended heat waves, which are both uh, the bellwethers of climate change here in the Midwest, right? So, um, you know, having been lived in uh, New South Wales for five months at least, yeah, you know, you deal with coastal flooding, well, you now you're dealing with coastal flooding, fires, um, Australia is like the, the touch point for all things climate. But in the Midwest, it's really the flooding and extreme precipitation, right? We don't, we're not on the coast, so hurricanes mean nothing to us, right? Sea level rise means nothing to us. But nevertheless, we're grappling with climate change. And it's, um, 
it's making things really uncomfortable. Without going too far down a different rabbit hole, what are the broader implications for farmers? First of all, not being able to get crops in the ground, but second of all, not being able to harvest. What does that mean for global production of food resources? Well, yeah, the Midwest is actually uh, the one of the, the globe's largest producers of grain that there is. Um, and so anything that impacts the U.S. impacts grain um, commodities throughout the globe, right? It has this ripple effect. So, for example, in 2012, there's a profound drought here in the Midwest. And uh, corn production um, went down by, I think, 35%. So grain production went down substantially. Um, which then causes an increase in uh, in the cost of beef. It ended up, uh, you know, that that er, er, so basically the the bottom tier of all of these uh, all of these chains of products when this impacted everything else impacted. So the price of of beef and hamburgers and steaks and so forth. But um, the other big issue that is really profound for people and it's one that they don't even understand here in the mid. West, right? They they drive through these beautiful cornfields. Right now, all of the corn, this is a month and a half after the peak of summer, everything's still green. Corn and beans, it looks lush and green. And it looks like, oh, we're producing so much food. But yeah, we're producing food for three sources. All of the grain is being, uh, 75% is for feeding cows and pigs and chickens. Right. We're producing grain for animals that we then eat. Another 10% is mandated by the U.S. Farm Bill uh, to turn into ethanol. So a fuel additive, right? A gasoline additive with this, um, this context that would be make U.S. the more, um, more energy independent. But really what it does is it just is a cushion for the farmers. And then there's a substantial amount of our grain that's made for um, corn syrup, which, yeah, is, is common and it's a food additive and, um, uh, and sugar, like normal um, uh, soybeans and, and corn, sugar and, and syrup and oils. So it's really, uh, you know, farmers are, they're, they're being propped up here in the Midwest by this artificial excess of, of convenient rainfall um, and a built-in commodity value, which is involves the, um, you know, the guarantee that U.S. is going to buy at least 10% of their product to make ethanol. Um, yet when the rain changes, right, when it doesn't rain, uh, the farmers are hit with that. You know, granted, all the farmers have, have insurance. So really, what it means is that um, all the rest of the Americans are hit with that. So it's, I, I, it's really... What, what I've learned being here is that it is not just a simple, well, there's corn and people are eating the corn. And if the, the yield is down, oh, well, that matters a lot for Indiana. No, that's not at all true. It's, it, it ripples through the global, uh, the global economy uh, and includes not just fuel, fuel prices and food prices, uh, but it also includes the sugar, the sugar commodities, which is odd, you know, but you know that is what um, corn syrup is 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 uh, is supplies. Yeah, absolutely. Many people probably don't know that corn syrup is in the food that they eat. Um, it's not listed on ingredient panels in Australia as frequently as it is in the US. Uh, however, mm -hmm. a close examination of those ingredient lists will reveal uh, wording that indicates that corn syrup is in is involved in the manufacturing of that product and as you say while the the immediate impact is hyper localized to the growers in the agricultural belt by way of they can see that they can't establish their crops and subsequently harvest then the, the impact of that is much broader reaching and and spreads further than just those farmers and Indiana, it is truly a global problem. Gabe, we could talk 
the impacts of climate change on farming and and global supply chains all day. Um, I wanted to change course a little bit now and let's hear a bit about your your career journey. What has gotten you to this place where you're now investigating the the big challenge, one of the big challenges of the world being climate change? Take us back to Gabe as a child. Huh. Gabe as a child was raised in the the very final um, throes of Cold War America, where, believe it or not, people of my advanced age, uh, we uh, as kids, as as kids, we were um, gone. We went through school drills. So now my kids have to so sadly go through school drills for an active shooter in the U.S. Right because we are insane and we think guns are a great thing to have around. Um, and yet, you know, we, we, we suffer the consequences all the time. Back then it was a uh, nuclear Armageddon. It was a, uh, it was a uh, catastrophic nuclear, uh, you know, nuclear war between the U S and the Soviet former Soviet Union. Uh, and so I was raised in that kind of environment where um, there was some, some assumption of the end game, like it's, it's the end of times. Similar, so I fast forward 50 years later, 40 some years later to this generation, the new generation is coming up, who for their end of days is climate change, right? Um, it, and so that they are grappling with this real existential issue. So throughout my, my, my life journey, it was informed by a couple key, I think a couple key steps. One is that although I, I grew up with that kind of zeitgeist of the Cold War era, fear of, you know, our, our drills were duck and cover drills. So they weren't duck and cover because of an active shooter they were duck and cover because a nuclear bomb had gone off. And so you just go underneath your desk as if that's going to, you know, as if that's going to help anything. Uh, but, uh, but I did have the benefit of growing up uh, through at least my teenage years in the country. So out in, in the woods, um, uh, being able to see the stars, for example, because of you know, no light pollution. Uh, and and being isolated enough back then, um, kids these days are never bored because they have um, the internet. Back then, we were always bored, so we had to occupy our own time, which meant a lot of exploring. You know, me and my dog exploring out in the creeks and 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 so forth. Uh, and so that informed in me a really a curiosity in how how the nature and the world works. And and so I carry that curiosity through a very tumultuous and, and, um, and problematic time as an undergraduate in the university, uh, assisted substantially by meeting the love of my life, who still is, um, who, who, sh who like shook me by the collar and said, you know, you, you got to get your act together. This is, you're smart. This is ridiculous. You shouldn't be failing a calculus class for God's sakes. Um, and, and from that point on it, it, I realized I kind of made a, a bigger commitment to, uh, to making a difference. And so one of the first things we did as, as a, then a young married couple, like 21, 22 years old, was become uh, Peace Corps volunteers. Uh, the US Peace Corps is a program that they send um, a cadre of uh, uh, people from the US to other countries, usually um, uh, low income, uh, low and middle income countries. So LMIX, they call them, uh, to, do what they can. They usually have very assigned uh, specific jobs. Um, it might be be a, a conservation manager for the, the Philippines. One of my former students was the, exactly that. Um, ours was to be vocational skills trainers in the country of Kiribati, which is, um, we, we uh, were friends of you guys. So I was a Peace Corps volunteer from 1987 to 1989 on a small atoll in the middle of the Pacific. Um, our currency was Australian dollars. You know, the Australian dollar pervade, pervades many of the island nations of the Pacific. Uh, so um, we were a Pacific island nation, but even back then, Paul, even back in 
1988, the headline of our Pacific Island Journal, which would come out, I think every, it was a quarterly journal, was the greenhouse effect and how countries like Kiribati, the Marshall Islands, Tuvalu are, are, are sinking. So there's a recognition 35 years, 34 years ago, that climate change was going to um, wreak incredible havoc in a lot of uh, Pacific Island nations. So that was a, a, a context that I had. Then when I went to my, my graduate school right after a Peace Corps, I got a PhD and then went for a faculty position. It's like, oh my God. So there is, there are global pressures that are coming around that are going to devastate small countries and poor populations that they had nothing, they had no part of causing, right? I mean, it, it's easy to, um, uh, you wouldn't have much sympathy for someone who, um, you know, piled a bunch of garbage on their yard and for some reason they found out their house wasn't, you know, uh, didn't sell for very much. Well, they had a bunch of garbage on their yard. Uh, but in this case, Kiribati had, and many of these countries had a bunch of garbage in our atmosphere, which is carbon dioxide. And, and their property looks terrible, meaning that uh, their water supply is in, greatly imperiled and their livelihoods are imperiled. Um, all for something they had nothing to do with. So that, that I think was a, re, uh, a lesson that then resonated for me throughout my continued career in issues of not just climate justice, but also, I, as you well know, because this was your expertise when you were a PhD and a postdoc, also um, other kinds of environmental injustices like lead contamination, which in the US at least is largely a problem of black and brown communities, you know, so communities of color who are low income. And this is not right. So that's, that. I, I guess some of it, it's, uh, it's just um, righteous anger of, you know, the, a lot of this stuff just isn't right and it should be changed. And Gabe, that actually takes us to one of the questions that I had pre-prepared to ask you, and that is about your current role as editor of the American Geophysical Union GeoHealth Journal. Now, this journal is, uh, amongst other things, interested in creating a platform for the examination of these environmental injustices on the global scale. Talk to me a little bit about that journal, but also the the research and the information that you see coming through that journal as a platform for researchers and people on the front line trying to get that message that, and their experiences out into the broader world. Yeah, so scientific publishing is sometimes very um, siloed and insular, right? So uh, a lot of, uh, it's because most journals, scientific journals are publishing materials and studies and research that is intended for the very small number of people who also are doing that kind of research. So let's say there's a journal on tectonics, which is focused, there actually is a journal called tectonics, which is focused on how the slow process of the earth works over ge long, long geological time, right? There's a small audience who's interested in this. Um, I'm interested just because I'm a scientist and I just think how everything works is just so fascinating. But GeoHealth is a very different beast, right? Um, GeoHealth was founded by just an absolute phenomenal scientist, um, a person I would, I would call a friend of mine, uh, first female director of the National Science Foundation, Rita Caldwell. Um, Every award that could be given, she's deserved. She's won and deserved. She probably deserved it forty years ago. But um, uh, Rita had this vision, which is that uh, what we do in the earth sciences shouldn't just stay among the ten people who read a journal article, right? That that or the the students who are forced to read one for a class assignment. It should actually be profoundly impactful for the world. So. That's sort of the vision. She said, okay, we've gone, we've, we've engineered the planet. By engineering the planet, I mean we've 
Uh, we've done things like produce a tremendous amount of plastic, as you've written so eloquently about. We've altered the entire global atmosphere. We've altered the land, right? We've done all of these things. And it's actually impacting our own human being health. So geo is the environment part. Health is the us health. You know, yeah, I care about deer and cats and birds well enough, but I actually care about me and my kids more, frankly. And so most of the journal, and, and it, since I started uh, as editor-in-chief four and a half years ago, I've kind of centered it a little bit more clearly on just the intersection between environmental health, meaning um, what's going on out in, in, in that world, and human health, what's going on with us. So where I see GeoHealth being very different from a normal journal is that uh, it has... Um, and I'm going to go into a little bit of journalese here, right? Um, we measure each other as, as scientists by how many scientific publications we have and what is the impact of that journal measured by some kind of metric that measures how important that journal is for the scientific field, right? So that's kind of how we value ourselves. That's what our reward structure is built around. And so GeoHealth as a journal has evolved from a journal that had no measure of scientific impact to one that actually has one of the highest increases of any, actually the highest increase of any American Geophysical Union uh, journal impacts over this last year, right? So it's, it's just gone, gone bananas, as we say in the US, I mean, in terms of, of scientific impact. But I could care less about that. The most important thing about GeoHealth as a journal is that it has the highest, uh, another metric called ultimetric impact. And all that means is that how often are papers from uh, the scientific journal cited in the media? How often do they end up in, um, in uh, a your ABC or in um, our um, New York Times or whatever? Uh, it's called the, the yeah, altmetric impact. Um, and, and GeoHealth is the highest journal of any of the American journal, Geophysical U Union journals in that metric. And that's because we've tapped into something that people felt sort of disconnected from the science, from, from science people. I mean, because it, it seems like science is something done by scientists in a lab somewhere. And then we just kind of live our life. Uh, but the journal is helping remind people, I think a little bit more that, oh no, science is actually impacting how we live, how we function, and how healthy we are in, in the day-to-day. -day. So the papers we publish range from uh, uh, special issues on the impact of COVID-19 on, uh, on various health sectors, uh, as well as what environmental drivers of COVID-19 were, all the way to a brand new special issue we're pulling together now on uh, environmental justice as well as one that's all, it's already um, well, uh, well along with a number of papers already published on what is the environmental, um, uh, environmental health status of North Africa. So you, know, you think of sub-Saharan Africa, this is all Northern Africa, Saharan and, and Northern Africa. So the journal is, I think, continuing to be my, um, uh, my megaphone for uh, environmental justice, uh, and I and and I'm not saying that I don't we don't publish I don't publish very geeky kind of papers that um, your listeners don't understand. I don't understand some of these things, um, but nevertheless, uh, and those are important too. It, we, you need fundamental science like that to drive science. But um, we, we try to also reach a little bit more broadly, and I think so far we've been extremely successful. For anybody that's interested in uh, looking at the journal, and if you're not so literate in sciences, maybe the, the hardcore geeky sciences, uh, scientists as you put them, Gabe, uh, the abstract is always a great place to start. The abstract and the concluding text, because that is uh, very much a plain English summary. So people can get a, an understanding of what's going on without getting uh, stuck in the complexities of the method and the the data analysis. So that's always uh, a useful tip that um, 
we share with undergraduates, particularly in their first few weeks, don't don't be put off by what seems like uh, a very difficult and complex topic to understand. Read the abstract first and see what you can understand and move from there. No, that's exactly right. And in fact, the American Ge Geophysical Union journals now are increasingly requiring, as does GeoHealth, uh, a something called a plain language summary. So it's even more simple than the abstract. Well, it's intended to. Not all authors are clued in to that fact. So I, we sometimes have to help them. But it's intended to be something that a normal human being, because I, I cannot stand how much amazing science is out there that is written for other scientists and not for normal human beings, nor even a modicum of, of effort to, to at least encapsulate some of that for um, a person on the street. If, if I were to walk up and down my street and if I could encapsulate some of the amazing science that ends up in journals in a way that they would understand, I'm not saying I'm dumbing it down. I'm just saying I'm speaking in a language that's more normal. Um, they would, you know, I'm sure our science budgets would all go up by tenfold. Uh, it's just incredible. But um, nevertheless, I agree with you 100%. There's, there's ways to approach scientific articles uh, for uh, a, a normal human being, uh, which is, you know, approachable and palatable. Not only that, but GeoHealth is free for any human being on the planet to read. It's a, what's called a gold open access journal. Um, so hopefully... Uh, it is disseminated broadly. Yes, absolutely. And I would encourage anybody to jump online and have a look at the journal, the recent issues and also the past, because you can see the evolution of the science and the evolution of our understanding of some of these enormous uh, global challenges and also the work that people are doing to combat those challenges. Gabe, with your research and your involvement in the journal and other facets of science, I've no doubt you've seen quite a lot to do with plastic pollution and the extent of the challenges of plastic pollution, both in terms of where it is seen in the environment, but also the impacts that that is having on people at the individual community and the global scale. Are you able to speak on that? just for a little bit now, um, to give us an understanding from your perspective. Yeah, so my, my first introduction to this as a global challenge was in 2013, so almost 10 years ago. Um, and then my most recent really deep education about it was reading your book and, the and learning about the Plasticology Project, where I got a much more nuanced and global understanding of what's going on. But my, my, my first touch on this as an issue, yeah, we, we've known about plastics for a while and they've been out there, they were useful products and you know, et cetera, et cetera. In 2013, I had the honor of um, serving as a senior science advisor in, the, in uh, the Ob President Obama's administration. Um, and I worked in the Department of State in their Environment Bureau under uh, Secretary Kerry, John Kerry. Um, um, yes, I saw President Obama from a distance once, and yes, I stood in the same um, uh, dinner and meeting, a number of meetings with uh, Secretary Kerry. I've never spoken to either of one of those, so I'm not pretending to be more important than I am. But um, it ends up the State Department is uh, one of the agencies within the U.S. government that deals with anything, deal I mean, they are the, they are the, um, uh, they're the tip of the pyramid for anything uh, that is international, right? So all of the different agencies within the US government. So some that many of your listeners would be familiar with, the United States Geological Survey, uh, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, the Bureau of, of uh, Minerals and Mining, they all feed into the State Department if it comes to um, anything dealing with international issues, right? Uh, and so I was given, when I arrived in 2013, I was given among a portfolio of mostly climate-related stuff, I was given a, a, a sub-portfolio of uh, the marine 
debris. I was, I was the State Department lead for the Marine Debris Task Force. It was called the Interagency Marine Debris Task Force just because there was all of the agencies that would touch on marine debris. So Coast Guard, um, which is the, our main coastal and the, our U.S. Coast Guard is in charge of all, all of our ports and ports of entry, right? Um, as well as the United States Geological Survey. So my role in the State Department was, um, was just to learn about and to figure out what we can do about marine debris. Uh, and it, it's easy to kind of classify marine debris in the abstract, but what we're really talking about is the incredible amount of choking plastic that is in ports and harbors and in the ocean. That's one aspect of marine debris. And the second is something they call um, ghost fishing. So there are abandoned fishing nets all over our coastal regions, which still capture and kill, uh, you know, fish for absolutely no, no reason. They're just, th these are fishing nets that have been long ago discarded or cast off. And they're just, cho you know, most like dolphins, they need to breathe, right? Well, if they got caught in a, in a net, they're not breathing. They're, they, they drown just like we would. So my role was to um, be the Coast Guard, I mean, the State Department liaison with that. But it, it kind of got elevated in a funny bit of politics is that um, I, uh, we, uh, you know, I, there was a, con within about a month or so of arriving there in Washington, D.C. in my position, there was a conference, a marine debris conference in the Caribbean, in Jamaica. That uh, was a global conference, actually, but uh, it was all about dealing with marine debris, which includes plastics and so forth. Uh, and uh, and I was going like uh, like about forty other people from the U.S. federal agencies were going. Well, coincidentally, we had a federal um, shutdown. Um, we had a a budget kerfuffle um, where. Um, uh, you have your own political parties in Australia, but we have ours in the U.S. too, as, you, as everyone well knows. Uh, there was a fight between the two. The government was shut down, meaning no, no federal employees could actually do any travel, except for one bureau, which was the State Department. So um, here I was, I was a month into my you know, grand position, and I was sent off as the sole U.S. representative to Jamaica uh, for this International Conference on Marine Debris. Well, um, that part of the story is kind of just boring and ironic, but I think the part that's interesting was that from that meeting, I realized how much a lot of the smaller countries, particularly island nations, were having these extreme challenges with plastic pollution, right? Because uh, a lot of times their water um, systems were unstable or they've been sold a bunch of, you know, they've been sold into this, idea that their water is unclean so therefore they have to buy plastic water they have to buy water bottles um that were imported from overseas right so they've got all of this plastic that it's been brought in newly brought into their country but they have absolutely no facility for recycling right no facility for disposal and so this these plastics would end up littering their their streams their waterways their Right, because you it ends up in the street, but eventually it'll end up in water. That's just everything's downhill, and the downhill is always water, right, on our planet. It would all end up in the waterways, choking these waterways. Uh, and and there was a push to try to figure out either how to recycle this stuff better or to capture it in some way and turn it into biofuels. Right. Um, it's kind of ironic what you're doing is you're taking a fossil fuel that they sold us as a bottle, water bottle. You're using it once to drink a liter of, of water. Um, and then you're melting it and digesting it down to turn into diesel fuel, which fuels something and then ends up shooting the CO2 back up in the atmosphere. So the whole system is just crazy land. But nevertheless, it is something that um, the, the, the small island nations are really actively considering. So uh, these small reactors, what I mean, these small digesters or biodigesters. So that was, I think my first foray into that world. Uh, and uh, I'll tell you, Paul, like, I mean, it's humbling to talk to some of these, these representatives. So they're federal representatives from countries and they're like, 
I talked to him about like, well, what's your recycling facilities like? Like recycling facilities? Are you kidding me? There is no such thing as recycling facilities. Um, and, and I naively thought this was just a quote unquote third world problem until even learning here in the US in my own city, only about 8% of the plastic is diverted to uh, recycled material. Most of it is burned in incinerators. Um, and they capture a little bit of that heat energy and spin a turbine to make electricity, but it's burned and all the CO2 goes straight up in the atmosphere. And that gives us a nice uh, link back to where we started this conversation about climate change. As you just said, plastic is uh, manufactured using fossil fuel derivatives, oil primarily. And one of the solutions that uh, is often used and recommended for the plastic waste stream is incineration. But of course that releases the fossil fuels back into the atmosphere or into the atmosphere rather. And it takes us back to climate change. Let's explore the interrelationship a bit more between the plastic industry, the fossil fuel industry, oil and gas, and climate change. Because I know that this is something that you could speak for hours on. I, I, I could actually, but I know that um, I would bore, I bored my children when I lecture to them. So I will, um, I'll be more kind to uh, your listeners. But uh, this was also um, a, a really a brutal reality that struck me when I was in the State Department is that um, I was such a low level science functionary in the State Department. It's not like people were pounding on my doors to get an audience with me, right? Except, except one exception. Um, and, and I, well, I won't impugn their name. It was uh, basically a plastics lobby in DC. So this is a lobby. This is a company whose sole existence is supported by, uh, ends up that the plastic industry gives a certain amount of money to a company. And the company's job is to go in around Washington, DC, you know, the capital of the country to talk to congressmen uh, and congresswomen, um, uh, other decision makers and places like the State Department about how great plastics are and how they are a phenomenal solution to many global problems, right? Uh, and so lo and behold, I get four different meetings, maybe three, I'm exaggerating, with the plastics lobby. They come to my office and they bring all their slick materials. And it really, that was my first understanding that this is all part of this grand um, lobbying machine that continues to chug along through environmental disaster after disaster after disaster. So if we wanna start off with the first disaster, it's a personal health disaster. Um, there was the same lobbying machine around cigarette smoking and tobacco. Um, it was a lobbying machine that was basically suppressing the science about how bad smoking was and elevating how wonderful smoking was for the economy and people's vitality, um, such that um, it delayed any action that we, any good action that we had on smoking and smoking cessation by uh, one or two generations, right? Then that same playbook was like, but it's just simply transported over and they, instead of cigarettes, uh, we turned it into, um, into fossil fuels by oil companies. So the oil company, oh, no, I'm sorry. Let me go back one step first, the intermediate step, uh, leaded, um, leaded gasoline and leaded paint. So they use the same machinery. Like we had lead in, in um, paint and gasoline. It was really convenient to put it in back then um, and made people a ton of money. Unfortunately, it also killed tens of, poison and kill tens of millions of people around the globe, uh, lead from lead poisoning. So they use that same tobacco lesson for lead and the same ideas that they would discredit the good lead studies and they would elevate, elevate the great economic benefits of lead 
and saying, oh, we can never get off of lead gasoline. It would, um, we would not have a single car we could sell again. And I don't know if you've noticed, Paul, but we still can buy cars that function off of gasoline that's not leaded, right? Uh, and then this same playbook was transferred over to the fossil fuel industry. Uh, and so the, um, again, um, back in 1988, back when I was in the country in Kiribati as a Peace Corps volunteer, and they were already alarmed by climate change. There was uh, teams of lawyers at Exxon who already knew the science. They'd already seen the science by Exxon scientists who said climate change is going to be the hugest challenge of the next generation. And we need the only cause of climate change is burning of fossil fuel. So these lawyers figure out, okay, that's, that's gonna, that's gonna cut into our bottom line. So we better figure out a way to, to change the message. Um, so they've changed the message in, in phenomenally subtle and obvious overt ways. Um, and then uh, probably about the early part of this century, so probably about the late 1990s, but really the 2000s, they realized that they're gonna run out of a product to sell. People are not gonna wanna buy oil anymore uh, because um, we know it's terrible. It's a, it's, it was last century's way to make energy. It's not this century's way to make energy at all. It shouldn't be. Um, and so they were trying to figure out a market for oil. And so they captured plastics. Like, oh, if we can make a water bottle out of plastic. You, you wrote about all this stuff, but if we can make a, a water bottle out of plastic, and we can also convince a bunch of uh, countries that don't have safe water supplies. This is the best thing since sliced bread. Let's just, you know, bring, get water bottles shipped in. Uh, it's safer for baby formula, like for um, people who aren't breastfeeding, which it is true. I mean, it, it is sterile and it's better than, you know, bad water, but uh, they basically sold us on another product, another way to sell oil. So, Plastic, as you've written about, plastic water bottles are just another way to say to sell oil, and you know, and and so they continue on this uh, this industry funded uh, stream, you know, and the then the challenge for you and I and everyone listening here is that we're not well, not many of us are politicians. I'm certainly not, uh, and so uh, we we don't experience the pressure that lobbying you know that these lobbies have on politicians and their future and so this is the, the one of a few frustrating aspects to me about political processes is that um politicians and decisions at the political level are not always meant with our not always made with our best our collective best interests in mind um and you know i understand i don't want to begrudge any company for making money but um I would, you know, just my, just as I would begrudge an, uh, a lead uh, a, a lead smelting factory for making money, I begrudge um, fossil fuel companies for making money now because is they've been patently shown to be dangerous to the planet, um, and I the fact that they have managed to figure out another way to sell a product, a dangerous product now via plastics, doesn't isn't only offensive from its original source, right? So they make plastic out of fossil fuels that they pumped out. But as you mentioned earlier, even that small proportion that's burned and incinerated that contributes straight up to um, you know, atmospheric uh, climate change issues, is, you might as well put it, put it in a gas tank as turned into plastic, right? It's just delaying the process a little bit. But the worst part about plastic is, and as you've written about so eloquently, is that it's not just the fossil fuel, it's not just that small cycle, right? Um, oil to plastics, to single-use and then burning and then emissions out in the atmosphere, is that this stuff is now choking our environment, choking our forests, our ice, our oceans. Um, and I'm not saying like literally choking, obviously the planet still functions, fish are still fine and so forth, but the fact that you can find microplastics in many of us and in our fetuses and in wildlife is, you know, I. I can't, I, I don't, I'm not naive enough to think it's benign. Um, it might be, who knows? I don't think it is. Gabe, I think it's really important here to highlight how the ecosystem doesn't function in separation, in isolation. And what I mean by that is the ecosystem has many moving parts, different components 
And if one particular aspect of that ecosystem begins to struggle, begins to fail, then that will have an impact on how that entire system functions overall. No, that's right. And, and I think that's one thing that we've probably over the last 50 years gained a, a much greater scientific understanding of is the link between these systems, right? It's, it's easy to, I mean, uh, the human mind, my own as well, um, likes a very straight line between point A and point B, right? The cause and effect, right? Um, and and if, you, if the effect is bad, well, you reduce the cause. And so then, the, then um, you reduce the, the, the net impact of the effect. But, oh boy, uh, we've understood that it's not so simple. Um, we went from, um, for example, in ecology, an ecosystem chain, which is like one organism impacts another or impacts another and so forth to an ecosystem web, an ecological web, understanding that, oh, it's, it, it's vastly complex. And we don't always know, we don't always scientifically understand the, um, the, the linkages between these pieces. I mean, one example actually that brings us all the way back to this extreme flooding events that I referred to way in the beginning of this is our, so we knew climate change was caught was is causing a number of things, right? It's, it's making about everything worse. Um, it, uh, flooding, it's making it worse. Uh, drought duration, it's making it worse, and and then drought duration links with fi- wildfires, right? Uh, hurricanes, it's making them wetter. But we didn't actually always. We haven't had enough observational record to understand why that why our our guess was going to be true, and it ends up being true because of something that's really only come up for the last 10 years is these observations of the fact that climate change, what the main thing it's done is to um, explain, I'm trying to explain this clearly, decrease the temperature gradient from the equator to the pole. So um, uh, the, the equator is, the, the temperature of the equator, the average temperature is basically defined by the fact that it's actually receives the most sunlight during any, you know, all year long. It's, it's the equator, right? The sun goes back and forth over it during summer and winter and summer and winter. So it's always gonna be hot. That's just the definition of the equator. The poles on the other hand, um, only get a transient bit of sunlight and then it goes away to the other side and so forth. Um, the only way you can change that, that metric, that math is if, the, the um, water vapor in the atmosphere is able to transport, um, and the ocean is able to transport that heat from the equator up to the poles more efficiently. Um, and the only way to make that happen is through clim- climate change. So if you increase the greenhouse gas uh, in the atmosphere, you increase the ability for heat to be transferred from the equator to the poles. So that means that if there used to be a normal difference of let's say 20 degrees, I'm making up a number, okay? is now the difference is only 15 degrees. Um, again, a made up number, but the point is that the, great, the, the difference is less, which means that atmospheric weather patterns used to sweep rapidly around the globe, right? Um, the weather, you know, uh, our, our atmosphere circulates around our each, each hemisphere about every week or two, right? Our, our entire air mass does. Now it's getting stalled because there's not nearly as much energy, not, not as much movement energy in the atmosphere. So imagine this, we have, uh, and, and, and you know, we're all familiar with what a high pressure zone leads to in a low pressure zone, right? High pressure zone leads to relatively stable and, uh, uh, weather conditions. And um, if it's hot, well, that's, uh, that's a drought, <laughs> you know, that's a heat wave, right? Um, and low pressure systems opposite, um, unstable, meaning they're bringing in a lot of water, a lot of moisture. And both of those systems are stalling over, over like in Europe, the, the huge heat wave this summer was from a stalled high pressure system. In New South Wales, the huge flooding events that we had from end of summer of this year was from a stalled low pressure system, right? So these systems are stalling in our atmosphere, um, which are causing uh, 
again, you know, under this general regime of, of gen global warming, people might think of it, oh, I'm, it's only warming a degree or two. How, how is that bad? Well, it's actually causing these chaotic weather conditions in the sense that we haven't experienced them before as a, as a, as a, as humanity actually. And, um, and what's, what's, I think telling is that a lot of communities are trying to grapple with the effects. Um, what's also telling is that, uh, you know, it, this can get worse, believe it or not, this actually, this can get worse and it will get worse unless we continue to ramp up the pressure to limit the production of fossil fuels, which includes limiting and banning plastics. You know, I, I'll tell you, I, and I've related this to you anecdotally or personally, um, politics are not our friend on this, uh, in this landscape, certainly not in the US. You know, I saw a transition in, in Australia that I hope will continue strong, but in the US, it's always been a fraught relationship between uh, uh, what partisan politics decides is, is good science and what is actually real science. So the Republicans have tended to be the party of um, climate denial and the Democrats, the party of climate alarm. Um, what we had here in Indiana is very characteristic of the power of the plastics lobby. Uh, about four years ago, uh, a town in Indiana, which is a, is a very conservative state, it's very red if you know the political spectrum, very red Republican state, um, decided we want to get rid of all of these plastic, stupid single-use plastic bags, right? They, had, they, they issued a plastic bag ban. So no stores can give out plastic bags um, or maybe they give them out but for a cost. And once, once they add even, even five cents or 10 cents to a cost of plastic, people will then bring their own bags, right? It's, it's, a, it's a super small incentive, but it works. It shockingly works well. Um, and so they instituted a ban on plastic bags. The plastics industry caught wind of this ban on plastic bags, lobbied the Indiana government to ending up successfully um, uh, passing a, a law that says there's a ban on plastic bag bans in the state of Indiana. So you have this community trying to do the right thing and the state says, no, you can't because of whatever. I mean, they came up with some reason in the law, but it's all because of the plastic lobby. Plastic lobby says, oh God, no, we can't lose, we can't lose market share. Um, not only does, you know, the, the plastic lobby make plastic bags, they also make, um, I mean, plastic bottles, they also make plastic bags. So they did not want to lose the market. So like, okay, everywhere in the US we can see and they, I think it only cost them $40,000, $50,000. And that paid off enough lawmakers to now have a ban on plastic bag bans in the state of Indiana. It's, um, that's, that's uh, it, it's a great example. It makes me apoplectic to talk about it. Um, but it's an example of how, how, um, how stupid we can sometimes be on some of these issues are really our global issues. Yeah, they only affect a small town in Indiana. I understand that. But it, it speaks volumes for how we manage the globe. For some people listening, the interaction between the plastics industry lobby, the oil and gas lobby, and what eventuates into policy may be incredibly startling and surprising and very shocking and some people listening may feel a a sense of anger over this and a sense of shock i and as i as i was too i was not surprised being in the state of indiana that there would be this kind of backwards thinking <clears throat> but i'll tell you there's a lot of points of hope on on issue on the environment right now. Um, one of the points of hope is just this, you know, yeah, we are still emitting a ton of carbon and we're still producing a lot of these plastics and so forth. And um, nevertheless, the in, in the US at least, uh, there was uh, a 16% reduction in carbon emissions over the last three years, not just pandemic related. 
it's having to do with a rapid transition to renewable sources, right? Um, and the, more, the faster that transition occurs, I would argue, the sooner we're gonna get plastic out of our systems, right? Because um, eventually fossil fuel companies will not be able to sell their poison to us anymore, whether that's the poison going into our, our, our automobiles or the poison going into our single use plastic bottles or, or uh, grocery bags. Uh, and this transition is happening fast. Uh, it's happening before our very eyes. And um, this is one of these times that I've been so deeply inspired by the youth climate activist groups. So in the US, I will tell you, um, I, you know, I've been pushing this issue as you can imagine for a very long time. Uh, and Trump was a huge, uh, you know, downer on any attempt to do anything good for the planet or for normal humanity, uh, other than, you know, rich white males. But um, what, what I was disappointed at when, um, when uh, now President Biden was a candidate was that he has always been extremely benign, extremely vanilla about major changes in the environment. I think maybe because of his age or I, I don't know what, but one, one ingredient pushed him over the edge and that was the youth climate voice. And that was the progressives in the U.S. saying, um, no, um, and, and he's a smart enough man. He has kids. He's, he's a wonderful person. And, and he understands that, you know, the future is, is in his hands to a large extent, right? Yeah, well, not in his personal hands, but in the hands of the leaders of the world. And, but the message resonated, resonated with him. It's like, well, we've got to do something. And a great example is his absolute steadfast commitment to, uh, to climate, uh, to reducing uh, climate impacts, of reducing carbon emissions. And that's been thwarted because via very political, you know, various political reasons here in the US, but it has a glimmer of hope now with a, you know, recent change in decisions by some of our, our senior senators. And, um, and it might be that the legislation he proposed uh, and has now been supported by it looks like maybe a majority of senators will come to pass, which will result in nearly meeting the Paris Climate Accords targets for the US, nearly meeting a 50% rejection in carbon emissions. Um, having said that, it's, you know, the market's already turned, market's already turned against coal and, and now is turning against uh, gasoline and fossil fuel. 6% of the cars sold in the US last year were electric vehicles, EVs. It's, our, the trend, it's, it's happening um, and it can't happen fast enough. And I would encourage your listeners in Australia to do, to support everything that, ha that you, you hear about a rapid transition to net zero, but also be watching every one of those coal ships that is leaving the wonderful harbor of Newcastle, Australia, where I lived for five months, full of coal to be burned in Southeast Asia. Um, there is also leaving from, of course, uh, in, uh, in Queensland and other ports. Uh, you, you need to be thinking, I think, clearly about not only your own carbon footprint there in Australia, um, and kudos to you. You have, the, the, I think, the largest, maybe one of the largest residential percentages of uh, roof-based solar on the planet in that country. You know, granted, you're, you know, you have a stupid amount of sunlight, so uh, that helps you. But nevertheless, you bought into it and your market has, has adjusted accordingly. Um, I say go all in. And I say that includes um, stopping, uh, stop mining coal and sending it off to Asia, because all that makes is more misery for the rest of the world. Gabe, I think on that, we shall end our discussion because... With that statement, I think you've summarized everything that we, we've been talking about. Well, thank you. Certainly, I, I appreciate um, th This is me stepping off my soapbox. That was me on my soapbox. Um, no, but I understand that problems are more nuanced. I, I, can, I can make live statements like stop mining coal. I know it's not so simple. There are people who have their jobs based on coal. I, I understand all of that. And I hope your listeners understand that um, you know uh, that that I understand the nuances. I'm a I'm a 
58 year old man who's lived life, right? So I understand that there's there's compromises one makes. However, um, I will say that uh, anything we can do in this decade to get off of this stuff as quickly as possible uh, will help the planet immeasurably and help my kids. You know, I have kids. I hope to have grandkids sometime soon. I, uh, the key, these kids have to get going, but nevertheless, um, yeah, I, I hope for uh, a, a planet that's, that has a manageable climate for them, uh, which includes also a planet that's not choked with plastics. Gabe, thank you very much for shedding some light on the um, the climate change issues and how that all relates to uh, the environment where you are in the Midwest of the US and also speaking to us about the connections between climate change, the oil and gas industry, fossil fuels and plastic pollution. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. Paul, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you and as well, I, I support this. Uh, your efforts has been phenomenal, uh, seeing, seeing what you've contributed to this, this field. Um, and and uh, yeah, and it was a, it was a joy speaking you, to you from this time, last time we spoke both from Australia, to each other in another podcast this time we're actually on the other side of the of the hemispheres but nevertheless yeah it was a pleasure thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the plasticology project podcast it's been great having you along if you'd like more information please see the show notes alternatively head to www.docpjharvey.com if you have been enjoying the plasticology project podcast please make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you listen to your podcast. Please also head over to the website and join the mailing list to stay up to date with the latest happenings in the world of the Plasticology Project. This has been another episode of the Plasticology Project podcast. Thanks for listening.